It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Back at it. Hello again, everyone. Glad to be with you on the program this week. Jason Adams of the Airhead Rally Team. Those of you who are on Adventure Rider are familiar with Jason. He uses the stagehand moniker. Those of you not on ADV and might not have heard of him, Jason, I think, has a fascinating story about how he came into rally racing airheads and all the adventures that go along with it. William Plam, he's not with us this week. We've had some scheduling conflicts, but rest assured, he'll be back with us soon. Want to dip into the email inbox here for a minute and say hello and thank you to Niall in Ireland for tuning in and sending a note. He passed along some good guest suggestions that we'll be looking into, so appreciate that, Niall. Hope all is well with you. Also, hello to Matthew Miles in North Queensland, Australia. He dropped a line with some wonderful photos of three really nice airheads, an R100T and 83RS and an old R60-2. Matthew's among the under 40 riders out there who've fallen under the 247 spell. And Matthew says he's resisted the current customization craze and has maintained this nice fleet of mostly stock condition 247s, with the exception of the slash two there, quite well. So kudos to you, Matthew. Good to hear from you. Thanks for taking the time to write. As always, if you've got a topic or a guest suggestion, maybe you just want to say hello, drop a line, airheads, with an S, airheads247 at hotmail.com. So our guest this week started out his 247 journey on a mid-70s R60-6 a number of years ago through a series of life events and changes. Jason Adams has relocated from upstate New York to Zurich, Switzerland, where he currently resides. Along the way, Jason has worked with Max Stratton at Max BMW, Anton Larjadere, Paul Rooney, and Manu Shad at SVT, building, repairing, and racing airheads in a variety of forms and iterations. We'll dig into all that. I think you'll find his experiences are entertaining and informative. One last note before we get started. Want to mention that this episode uses all the words in the English language. So if you have a youngster that listens along, we've not edited anything out. Just be aware and enjoy. So off we go. A chat with Jason Adams of the Airhead Rally Team on the Airhead 247 podcast. Well, let's let's dig into it. So the first thing I want to know is, where on earth are you? I am in Zurich, Switzerland, um, close to Germany, but it's definitely Swiss. Okay. Uh, and we moved here because my wife uh, 
works for an American company, and there's an office here in Zurich, and it was either here or London or Frankfurt. So we chose Switzerland. I think that's a pretty good choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you like uh, a good idea. <laughs> and you've been there how long now? Almost five years. This summer will be five years. Wow. Okay. So. I, I did a little bit of research, and by a little bit, I mean, you know, 10 minutes on the Internet. And uh, you were a member of IATSE, uh, which folks may or may not know, International Stagehand Union or something. Uh, I was loosely yeah. uh, loosely affiliated with that when I first moved to Memphis uh, many, many years ago. I think you and I are around the same age. I was born in 1970. I'm kind of guessing we're a close vintage. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, you w worked at a really neat old opera house, which I just want to yep. ask you a little bit about that. Uh, that was your moniker, too, on Adventure Rider Stagehand. So just tell me a little bit about that work you did um, uh, in uh, New York. Oh, man, I love that place. Yeah. I grew up there. That's the town I grew up in. Um, and I, I started doing stage work when I was a kid, like I was eight years old. Uh, was the first paycheck that I got. Um, and I started working at that old theater. It was, it, it's a, it's a gem of a place. Like, uh, it is the continual, it's the oldest continually operated theater in New York state, continually operated. There are some older ones, but they went dark for some period of time, but this one's been heated the entire, since 1869, uh, when it was built. And it's uh, called the, Bard of Vaughn, am I pronouncing that right? That's right, like the Bard of Avon. Got it. Um, the Bard of Vaughn 1869 Opera House. Um, yep, in Poughkeepsie, New York. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's an amazing old place uh, with a tremendous history. It's really cool. Uh, all made out of wood, which is why there's none of them left. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of them burned down, I suppose. Yeah, because they were all gas lit originally. Yeah. Too, mm -hmm. City, so. um, and they were all, like this one was um, in the 70s, like about to be torn down. Well, in, actually, you know what? In the 30s, it switched from being, it was an old vaudeville or theater, like proper theater place. And then, then it switched to being a movie house. And they showed movies there, like first run films from like the 30s through the 70s. And then everything was about to die in the 70s. And a group of concerned citizens brought it back from the dead, and, and uh, it, it sort of survived. And now they do, like, a little bit of everything, um, from opera to dance to concerts to movies and blah, blah, blah. They do everything. Wow. And so you were sort of the tech and lighting director there. What uh, I'm familiar with that in, in a roundabout way. I was a traveling musician for a number of years, and then currently... Uh, I work at a state park where we have a thousand seat music venue. Uh, so, you know, we, yeah, we've kind of done a lot of similar things, uh, in that regard. So how long did you, how long was that? Did you have that job? How long were you, had you been working there? I was like officially there for like 16 or 17 years. Um, wow. But I had been, but I worked there as a, uh, freelance since I was a kid. You know, like off and on. Um, it was just when I, I was a roadie for most of my 20s. And 
when I returned from those lost years, like I <laughs> re- returned home as, as prodigal son returns uh, and got a job at my old theater in my old hometown. And then like a year, I was doing like spotlight, you know, and just like off, off, uh, off the cuff stuff. And then about six months after I moved there, the, the technical director quit. And I was like, Hey, I can, I would love to have a full time job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, yeah, sure. Sounds good. And that was 1997. Wow. So you said you were roadie for a while. So were you out with, uh, you're out with bands, uh, kind of like the old Jackson Brown song. Um, yeah, I was, uh, but I worked for the staging companies like, um, Oh yeah. I built, I built scaffolding and stages. Dude, I did that. I did that for a summer. In 1991 or 92, it was in Ohio. And yeah, it was a staging company. I can't remember who it was, what they were called now. But it was so strange. I was at a bar in Cincinnati. Uh, I went to school in Athens, Ohio. Anyway, I was just at a random place. I'm sitting in a bar and this guy comes up to me and he's like, hey, uh, you need a job? And I was like, "Uh, what is it? He said, I work for a stage, staging company. We set up concert stages. He said, give me a call. So two days late, I guess they were short on staff, and they just went to bars and looked for guys that looked like they could you know, handle that kind of stuff. Anyway, a couple of days later, I'm out. Uh, a winger, Bullet Boys, uh, Cinderella and Bon Jovi at the Akron Rubber Bowl, and I saw Cher uh, the first night I went to do a job like that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Really? Yeah, that was literally like the story of my 20s. Yeah. That's like being press-ganged into a British fighting ship. You know, that, like, <laughs> totally. Yeah, guy, crazy like, hours. Hey, come and look at us. Great. Yeah. Crazy hours, you know, you work like uh, 20 hours and then sleep a few hours. And, you know, it's just a ridiculous schedule from, when I, from what I remember. So, I, I, yeah. So, I mean, you've got, I'm, surely you've got a good story or two from those days. Oh, my God. <laughs> I only remember a couple. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, that was, yeah, that was like a really wonderful, <laughs> a really wonderful and uh, part of my youth. <laughs> Yeah, I think I really think only young people can do it. Um, That's true. Like they only, I, I remember the old guys who were in it, and they were younger than I am now. <laughs> and um, all the old guys I knew like died one way or the other. Um, <laughs> yeah. So right, and I remember being like I was a kid because I at eighteen, and it was like a crazy deal. Because I skipped the whole uh, uh, apprenticeship program that you're supposed to go through because they needed stagehands. Like uh, ordinarily, it was a, a that particular local uh, built scenery for Broadway. Okay. Here, the Middletown, Middletown, Newburgh, New York, which was just upstate from New York City, and primarily they had a bunch of scenery shops. So we were the they were like the scenery guys, but like there was a whole crew of us that was working at Giant Stadium building stages. And that was 642, local 642. And we had to get union cards to work there. Uh, and so we got 311 cards, which was the upstate local building scenery. 
so we could work down in the, the Jersey local. Anyway, uh, yeah, I did a bunch of union stuff for a bunch of years. <laughs> uh, but then that, and actually that got me on the road because that got me into the venues that got me onto the state, into with these staging companies, which wasn't unions. And then that got me onto a whole, like, you know, rabbit hole. Uh, yeah, and then I ended up back in New York and working at the theater. And that was great for a whole bunch of years. Wow. And it was kind of thing where I started there in my, I was like maybe 27 or something. Uh, no kids, no family, you know. <laughs> uh, and then 15 years later, I'm, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, family, um, totally different. <clears throat> totally different scene. Yeah, so, I can imagine. I mean, you were just kind of going whichever way the wind blows uh, to a degree. Effectively. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Whichever way seemed like it was a good direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. So you were in you were in New York. You grew up in New York. I want to sort of stay on this conversation path here of how you landed in Europe. And I have to say, <clears throat> initially, I thought yeah, I had seen your posts on Adventure Rider, kind of followed what you were doing there uh, when you were racing your uh, GSPD uh, here in the States. And then you sort of disappeared for a while. And the next thing you know, you're in Europe. And I thought, oh, he moved over there. And, you know, he's found some guys to race with. And, you know, he's kind of following his his muse as as a racer or, in, you know, enduro or, you know, whatever, something along those lines. But it's actually... Uh, you're uh, going over for your wife's work, which totally understandable. What I want to ask you, though, is that's a and especially for somebody my age, you know, we're in our in our early 50s. That is just seems like such a huge life change to go to a different country. I mean, good grief. What were those discussions like? Well, um, because my life had, you know, changed so much. Uh, and I am, as a stagehand, ready for anything, more or less. You know, like, I can do anything for a while, uh, briefly, <laughs> you know. So uh, I had already quit my job at, see, what happened was uh, about, it's going on eight years or well, maybe ten years ago, ten years ago now, my God, my wife got a job upgrade, which required her to travel a lot more, and our daughter was about four or five at the time. Uh, and I was like um, growing apart from my job, you know what I mean? Because it had become less challenging. Uh, and I had a family, so I didn't feel like working Friday and Saturday nights for crap shows. Um, so I decided, Hensley was like, why don't you, it, the job is going to pay well enough that it obviates what you're making. And why don't you stay home because I'm going to be traveling all the time. Like, I can't travel if you're not there or not there. So we decided to do that for a couple of years. And that's when I was able to, I don't know, not pursue. I, I could pursue some different things. You know what I mean? And racing was just one of them. Uh, you know, I could start. What was really cool is I could start making trophies for the rallies. Uh, I had the time to, like... <laughs> I could get free entry to the rallies by if I could build the trophies. <laughs> That's pretty slick. Okay, good. So I thought that was brilliant. I like, 
because everybody likes getting a handmade trophy. And I was learning how teaching myself how to weld at the same time. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and I could take care of the kid. Um, so I did that for a while. And then the opportunity came up where she was like, we have the opportunity to like move to Switzerland. Uh, and the contract set for like two or three years, maybe, you know, we'll give it a shot. I was like, sure. You know, we keep the house in New York. Not what's the difference if I do what I'm doing here or there. Um, Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, but you know, and then we were here a year and then COVID hit. Oh, good grief. Uh, um, and I was like, hey, this, but before we got, before that happened, it was like, hey, you know, I get an opportunity because I'd already now done a bunch of rallies in Mexico and Canada and the U.S. And I'm like, hey, this is an opportunity to try out some of the European rallies. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, okay, yeah, I mean, I can do this. I mean, we're not, we're committing for two years. That's not bad. Maybe we stay, maybe not. Who knows? What's the difference, really? Uh, okay, we'll give it a shot. So we give it a shot. And COVID hit. It was a really nice place to be for COVID. This place is, was splendid. <laughs> it was like nothing. And we had the ski resorts to ourselves. So um, it was really nice, actually. I kind of miss it in a way. <laughs> but uh, time passed, and just New York looked less and less attractive. Like the U.S. started seeming less and less like, you know, I don't know. Um, where were we going to go? If we were going to move back, our gut, we'd have to think about putting our daughter in school somewhere. And so after like three or four years, like we were here for a year, and there was two more of COVID, we're here for three. It, it was a long decision chain, right? There was like a whole series of different things that happened, and, and here we are. And then our daughter wanted to change schools, and we thought about going back to the U.S., but we found a school that we liked that was closer to Europe, so we're, now we're like, okay practically here five years now and uh and my wife's maybe now five years from retirement so my daughter's also five years from ending high school so it looks like it's going to be a little bit more of long a longer term uh living arrangements there than uh than you might have originally thought and it sounds like you're okay with that well I, i'm curious uh i've traveled uh uh, to Europe a few times, uh, Italy, Spain, Greece, not extensively, obviously, but uh, three or four times. And I've got my own sort of thoughts and observations. I mean, you know, one, of course, the food is a lot better. Uh, things, think, things seem to be a lot cleaner, more organized. You know, the everything's a little bit more refined to a certain degree. There's a lot more history. Uh you know, all those sorts of things, which is great. Uh, conversely, you know, America's a big, wide-open state. We've got a lot more, uh, or a big, wide-open country. We've got a lot more freedoms here um, and all the things that go along with that. So uh, what are the, the sort of, what are the things you're you're missing about the states these days? And what are the things you're like, good grief, you know, I, I don't miss that at all. And I'm really glad I'm here. It's, yeah, it's really hard to say. It's not. It, there are some things I miss my friends and family. Yeah. Um, uh, it would be, you know, I didn't necessarily mean to uh, abandon them. <laughs> uh, that wasn't my intention. I miss actually a little bit of rot. You know, we had some open ground that I could. It was like a big farm. We had fifteen acres. Mm-hmm. And it was on a uh, and it was at the end of a 
dead end. So it wasn't great for my kid, but it was great for me who could shoot squirrels off the back porch naked, basically. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. I, I live in the Ozarks in Arkansas, so I'm... I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know that I've done that exact thing, but I, I, know, I know the drill, yes. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, Spare tubes, yep, got them. Spare starter relay and clutch cable, check a Rooney. These are just some of the things on your checklist you may have when preparing for a road trip on your 247. Two things you may not have considered, the BMW MOA Anonymous book and the MOA's roadside assistance plan. No matter how well you and your bike are prepared, yep, the unexpected can happen. The BMW MOA Anonymous book, it's one of the most confidence-inspiring items I pack when traveling. It's full of contact information for MOA members across the U.S. and internationally who can offer assistance in the event of a breakdown or provide a tip on where to grab a good sandwich or catch a live band. I've used the anonymous book on a few occasions over the years. The result, always the same. Friendly assistance with a repair and a great story to tell down the road. Conversely, I've hosted and assisted fellow riders over the years and the same applies. Always a fun story and the feeling of satisfaction when helping someone in need. Now, roadside assistance plans. These start at $20 a year for the basic and top out at just over $60 a year for the platinum roadside and tire hazard protection plan. That includes 100 miles of free towing up to four times a year and two tire replacements each year up to $250 bucks for each tire. The Platinum Package covers up to three bikes, regardless of the brand or year. As with any offer, there are details and conditions here, so be sure to check out more on this on the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America website under the Resources tab. So next time you've got a long road trip planned, yes, pack your spares and make sure your bike is tuned and ready to go. And for that extra peace of mind, have your MOA Anonymous book and roadside assistance plan ready as well. All right, back to our chat with Jason Adams from the Airhead Rally Team. I do like the, the ability to travel and see things at such short range. Yeah. You know, um, things function here particularly well. Although, you know, there is a bit of a um, over. It, like, you, like you say, it, it's, it's a give and take because it is partially overbearing too mm -hmm. you know, like things function so well partly because there's so much control over everything it's gonna say there's it seems that there's more law i don't know if it's if i want to say laws regulations rules uh society yeah. societal norms that sort of keep the uh, the I machinery greased absolutely but i think that's required because they're in such close proximity for so long and they are really maintaining a, an amazing environment for their density you know like it's freaking beautiful here and clean and you gotta like kind of keep an iron fist about it if you're going to keep it that way sure i know that's understandable actually like income taxes are lower here than in the u.s which is nice um but what i think is that you really see a you see your taxes in action immediately like that's what so i find nice about switzerland i like uh it, for example, like you pay a dog tax to own a dog, but like the the doggy bag 
things are equipped all the time. You know, there's always a doggy bag yeah. where you clean up the dog crap in it. Like you can see that your taxes go directly to maintaining the dog crap. What a great example. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're always maintained. They're, you know, like, and so it's kind of like, I can see that happening all around, you know, like, um, anytime something's broken, it gets fixed. Yeah. Ignored. On the other hand, the like MFK, uh, which is the DMV equivalent, is kind of a nightmare. Like, yeah. It, it has to be factory, right? And there aren't any crap cars around because they insist on a factory product, basically. Makes it difficult for me who's trying to like modify the bikes because nothing's allowed. <laughs> um, you know, without a ton of paperwork. But yeah, everything works, but nothing is possible. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that that's a good summation. And I've heard that uh, from other folks who I've interviewed over there, who have said, you know, the whole I, the whole idea of customization is, is a uniquely American concept, especially when it comes to cars and and motorcycles and things. And we pretty much do whatever the hell we want, uh, you know, yeah. as, as long as it stays on the road. Um, I mean, right. and here in Arkansas, it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say. You could title a rock uh, here, <laughs> just about. I mean, yeah. And the DMV here, you know, I I know the ladies, you know, I've got you know buy and sell a lot of motorcycles all the time, so you know they know me, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's just easy. I can imagine it's a completely different scenario over there. Well, all right, Jason. Well, I want to. I could talk about this a lot more because, and I think a lot of people uh who are into bikes especially airheads bmws european marks and things like that i've thought about boy wouldn't it be fun to you know live over in, in europe and be closer uh to another culture and another place where you know parts are available and there's more history and tradition with that kind of stuff i've thought about it too i don't know that i'll ever do it but uh, it's interesting to hear your experiences over there. So let's transition a little bit here uh, to motorcycles. So that's really what we're all about here. Uh, I want to know for you, what what got you into motorcycling probably as a kid uh, in upstate New York? Uh, was it a, a Pook moped, a, a mini bike? What, what got the bug started with you? All right. Both my parents had bikes. Oh, really? Grandmothers. Yeah. Your grandma. Uh, both of them, right. What, my, mom and my mom's grandmother and my grandmother and my what, mom's. What did they have? A Honda. My mom had a Honda CL200. Yeah. 72. I, st I still have it. Uh, and my dad had a CX500. And my other grandmothers had like Honda, the 360 CLs, I think. Um, but anyway, I rode around with them. And I it, it, upstate New York has hills. And there's long distances between everything. And I was pedaling my ass off, and I was like, this sucks. I could go places if I didn't have to pedal. I need an engine. <laughs> and they're like, you can't get an engine until you're, I don't know, 12 or something. And I'm at, at six years old, I remember thinking, that's my entire life <laughs> all over again. Right? Even then, I knew. And so I offhandedly, I used to go roller skating at this place in my hometown. Offhandedly, they were raffling off. Uh, a YZ50. Oh, man. Two-stroke, two 1978. Oh, yeah. 
I thought I put in, you know, when you when you pay to go in, you just automatically buy a raffle ticket. It's like a buck or whatever. I thought nothing of it. Christmas that year, it showed up in my fucking so, sorry. It showed up in my grandmother's kitchen, and uh, I was eight years old. And wow. I lost my I lost my mind, and I rode that thing around my dad's yard until my knees hit the handlebars, and then I started stealing the CX five hundred because I was like fourteen. <laughs> I would drive that around. Um, wow, I mean, so that is like every kid's dream—the black and yellow two-stroke yeah. uh, Honda. You won the raffle, man! I bet that must have been just an amazing feeling. That was unbelievable. Like they kept it such a good secret too. I had no idea. I remember jumping like I just literally felt my body rise like <laughs> eighteen inches in the air when I saw it. Like, um, it oh amazing. my gosh! My grandmother crashed on it. She got herself a concussion and two broken ribs. <laughs> um, but I drove that thing for a long time. I had no friends who could ride or did ride, so I never like raced, and I never like learned how to do wheelies or nothing. But I just rode it in circles around my yard for years and years and years. Wow. Wow. That is a, that's an early start. So you were seven, eight years old, uh, in 1978. Um, wow. Okay. So you got started off at a, at a real young age. Uh, let's fast forward a bit. So airheads first BMW came to you when, uh, uh, I got my license on the CX 500 and I rode that for like two years. And when I was 18, uh, my cousin came into a bit of money and he loaned me $1,200 to buy. And I got a, um, uh, 1975 R60 slash six, which I also still own to this day. Wow. Good for <laughs> um, you. And I named him George from the old Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, I will love him. And hug yeah. Him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He had, he was the factory brown color and had a big Vetter fairing. And I used to ride that thing year round and thought like winter was nothing until I got rid of that Vetter fairing. And I was like, holy crap. Yeah. That thing was, that thing was cutting off. That thing was like driving in a car. I, you could go anywhere. Yeah. Damn. It looked so dumb, but it was amazing. That's very practical. <laughs> yeah. I, I had one on a slash five, seven fifty. uh, you know, when I was much younger as well. And uh, it kind of looked silly, but, uh, it, yeah, it was very practical. Let's put it that way. Really, really nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, rode that thing around as my only transportation for a number of years of being a poor stagehand. Um, and then I went on the road, and then I lost, like, most of my 20s. Um, but I ended up, well, I ended up in Atlanta. It got... Uh, like, I don't know what happened to it. At some point, like, I think the transmission fluid drained out of it, and I was riding it, and it almost crashed because it, it was a long story, but I, I had to leave it in Atlanta <laughs> as those spoils of war. And then somehow, uh, by the grace of God, like, it ended up back in my hands a couple of years later after I'd been in New York maybe two years. And I met this guy, I, I used Yellow Pages back then because Google didn't exist and I didn't have a, a smartphone. Uh, and I found a dealer, or rather an independent BMW mechanic in a town near to mine, and I got the damn bike to him, and we ended up 
fixing it, right? And he was like, not only is the transmission fucked, but like pistons and cylinders are fucked too. I'm like, all right, let's just fix it because now I have a full-time job, right? Woohoo! Uh, <laughs> we got it fixed again. Then it was, well, let me jump. Any, anybody we know now? I'll get into that. Okay. Uh, well, maybe you don't know him. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, he's Tony, and he worked for Max's, but I didn't know that until a couple of years later. Okay. Um, because I ended up hitting a deer a couple of years later. Um, and we got the bike rebuilt again. Uh, and then it was like, I can't remember what happened, but Tony was like, I'm no longer independent, but I'm going to work for this company, or this guy, this dealership in Albany, and it's going to be called Max's. And I'm like, that's great. Because I was doing a lot of touring on that old bike once I eventually got it back. And he was like, oh, you want to do power line roads? Well, you should get a GS. And I'm like, what's a GS? <laughs> <laughs> um, He's like, I know a guy who's got a GSPD, 1990, he's got 30,000 miles on it, 6,000 bucks. I'm like, sold American. And then Tony started working for Max BMW when he first got into New York State. Right, so I'm driving the PD around, blah, blah, blah. 2007, because I got the PD in 2004 or three, and by 2007, I put 60,000 miles on it or something. Wow. Running all over the place. In like three or four years. That's right. amazing. Um, a lot of miles. A lot, lot of miles. miles. Uh, and a lot of them were because Max was interested in doing these like marketing deals. And also he was like, we would find these secondary roads in upstate New York. And he would lead like as a dealership, you know, a couple of guys or whoever showed up that day on an off-road tour, you know, dirt roads and power, whatever. So I started doing those days with him, and it was fun. And then a couple of guys were into the same thing I was, which was kind of like taking these big bikes slowly off-road. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, and so Max was um, into car rallies, which were a thing in upstate New York, yeah? Um, and then through his, I don't know, somehow through his connections, he sort of discovered that one of the car guys was going to piggyback bikes as a like way to incorporate bikes into rally. Yeah. And it was going to happen in South Carolina. And this was like 2007. And would I like to participate? And I'm like, <laughs> it sounds amazing. It sounds hilarious. Um, and he got me and my friend, John, who I'd been riding around with, who had an R80 GS and I had a PD and John was like, as a joke, he's like, Hey, yeah, now we're the airhead rally team. Uh, and I love the sound of that. And I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and the name stuck. And that was like, that's me from now on. Well, you too, or anybody really <laughs> who's got an air and wants to be that, but that's going to be me. I'm going to do that. That sounds awesome. Well, let's uh, talk about riding that that Paris Dakar, that uh, 90 PD, in those in a, in a actual, you know, race where they you know you're competing against other riders and you know really getting after it i had a similar bike i had a 92 uh pd for a number of years and i bought it when i moved here to arkansas thinking you know i wanted a gs because i was in a remote location i was uh, off tarmac a lot not by choice um i you know a lot of water crossings where i live and uh, i needed something that could that could handle that kind of terrain Kind of like you, you know, I bought the bike and then just sort of, now I wasn't rally racing, but I was, 
you know, off-road a lot, and it really helped develop my skills on a bigger bike like that, having to just hoss that thing around, especially on gravel bars, going through dry creek beds. I mean, that is a load pushing that bike around, um, <clears throat> as you know, as you know. So uh, tell me about what sort of things when you, on, on that PD, you first started doing that airhead rally team gets kicked off. What were some of the things you immediately noticed and went on to changing about the bike that made it a little bit more user-friendly for you in the rally race format? It was uh, all about suspension, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, technically making it lighter, but really, uh, it didn't re- lighter didn't really matter for what I was doing. I was just trying to survive. Like, I, I knew I wasn't going to win. There was people, like, who was fl- real racing people who were flying past me. And honestly, at 36 years old, in my first race in my life, like, I'm not expecting much. Um, I was hoping to win the crowd, <laughs> you know? Uh, I thought, I'm not really gonna, I'm gonna play to my strengths here. I don't, I, <laughs> this bike's not gonna win. And I'm not the one to, to ride it to a win. Like, I, I, it's the first time I did this. I'm just trying to, like, if I can finish on this thing, it'll be a total success. That was my goal and remains my goal to this day. Uh, it has obvious things that start to, it's the first, Effectively, what starts to fall off first is the thing you got to fix and then fix the things on down the chain. Like, those races rattle things off, and um, whatever breaks, you have to replace with a either, you know, you have to re-engineer for the intended use. <laughs> and so I basically just replace things as they broke with an upgraded version of it and then started then trying to think about, well, what's going to break or what, what's nearing the end of this lifespan or what, if I'm going to do this, needs a better lifespan. Yeah? Like, yeah, yeah. So what did you do suspension-wise uh, on that bike um, back then? What was available to you? I didn't know much about it back then. This was my the beginning of my learning curve, right? This is a nascent... I still am a, I am still, I, I, man, I, I still think I'm practically new at it. But back then I was very new at it because I was like, okay, a new rear shock is going to be better than this rear shock. At first I just tried to put springs and fluid in, but then I heard about cartridge inserts and I'm like, okay, we're going to go there. Right. Um, and then we're going to try and educate ourselves as to what a good compression rebound will be for this and the weight and the sag. And what are we doing here? Like, what is this? What does all this mean anyway? Uh, so that was the beginning of that education. Um, and so cartridge inserts help. Bigger brake helps. I still didn't know how to ride it. Like, um, and this was interesting because the next year, Max then called me again and said, hey, there's this other inaugural event that no one's ever done before called the GS Trophy thing, and we think you'd be interested in applying for. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that sounds really cool, too. That race in South Carolina was 07, and the first G Trophy was 08. Yeah. So, like, about a year before it actually happened, we started uh, applying, right, and I had to write an essay, and then... I had to get references. Max, thankfully, bless his heart, was one of my references. And then it got whittled down from my essay to my, like, you know, my, uh, of course, it's a marketing thing. So they were interested in my, in my social media outreach. I see. Okay. Uh, Interesting. So 
You basically had to give them a, a CV and a cover letter. Kind of, yeah. And they kind of whittled the hundred who, people who applied down to a bunch of people who had interesting stories or, you know, or had good references. And mm. then it, they whittled the 30 of us down to six who they then flew to the South Carolina proving grounds for the physical trials. And out of the six of us, they chose three of us to be the owner operators on the GS Trophy team to go along with the three uh, uh, journalists. Yeah. Now, what was the bike you were riding? The eight hundred. It was the new F eight hundred GS. Okay. Before it was new then, because it was, you know, it hadn't been a bike. It was oh eight. So F eight hundred was not a thing yet. Yeah, yeah. So, and to be clear. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. As I mentioned earlier, looking forward to having William back for another Tech Talk guest segment real soon. Now back for our final segment, with Jason Adams. Yeah, yeah. So, and to be clear, so this was a BMW North America uh, activity. Uh, you sort of applied for this uh, riding position through them with Max sort of being your underwriter uh, as the right. dealer. That that sounds like a pretty amazing uh, experience just to get looped into that all pretty quickly. It, it didn't sound like something you were necessarily aiming to do. It, it sounds the way you're describing it is Max says, hey, you might be interested in this. And then next thing yeah. you know, there you are. <laughs> I would say that's pretty much exactly the way it happened. <laughs> the, the tr I mean, the trophy didn't exist before that. This was the first one they'd ever done. So wow. they, were, they were totally winging it. Uh, and it's since gotten much more competitive. Like, you know, the first time out, they were just trying it and uh they didn't know if it was going to be another one you know <laughs> but bmw excuse me bmw especially in motorcycles is a bit schizophrenic and chaotic and they'll like throw a million bucks at because their bike department is like one one thousandth of their car department yeah so like almost a, a throwaway you know like they just do these things out of nowhere and then it disappears again. So it's, 
I find BMW to be chaotic in that way. Was uh, was I, the experience good? I mean, was it the event was well organized? You were like, treated well, all that kind of stuff. First class, like it was amazing. It was like the experience of a lifetime. Br- brilliant. You show and up. It it says. You've got a folder, you know, Jason Adams, you know, your name's on everything, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. With the, uh, right. It's on your bike. You've got a, uh, a custom rally suit with your name sewed on it. And, oh, like, hell yeah. Tree, tree flag. And, uh, yeah, you're treated like a king. I mean, and I got to ride around with six of these amazing riders for like a week. Uh, and I, in that week, learned how to ride sand across dunes by Jimmy <laughs> Lewis, you know, for free. Yeah. Um, because I didn't know how to do it before that. And John Beck and Brad Hendry and um, uh, Jim Stoddard, who was also a Max guy, coincidentally. Uh, and um, who was it? Ryan Dudek? Uh, is that six of us? I can't remember. Uh, I, I can't remember if I've said all six names now. But anyway, all those guys were unbelievable, and I am in no way comparable to them in riding skill. But Bill Conger, who works for BMW at the time, was one of the judges involved in um, deciding you know, who goes. But I, and like I said, I only raced before I was 36. I don't know how to do wheelies. I don't know how to do jumps. I don't know how to ride in sand. I don't know how to do any of this stuff, but like... I don't know. He saw <laughs> something that the team needed besides skill, like outright skill. I, I, I guess that's what I ended up bringing because I'm still not winning anything. I still like don't. <laughs> out of all this racing, I'm just a finisher. <laughs> um, you have to bring your own strength to the team, right? Uh, and I don't know what I brought, but we ended up winning. I think it was because of Jimmy. <laughs> wow. So you mentioned sand riding. So can you boil down to maybe a, a small essence? Uh, what is, what, what's one of the main keys of riding in the sand? It's a bit like you need to get up and plane. You, you need to get up to planing speed, essentially like a boat planing on water, effectively. Uh, and most primarily the weight needs to be on the over the rear axle and the front needs to come up onto the surface and float and plane uh, and kind of like a, um, a shopping cart with a, with a funky wheel, you know, it wobbles, it's, but in, and you can't hold the steering wheel tight because you just have to throttle up and let the front wheel wobble right on top of the surface and you can't go too fast, but you got to maintain a minimum pace. Does that make sense? Like It, it does. Yep. Plane. You have to plane. Sand is about the dunes, and that is about planing. Uh, minimum speed, like which is usually for me, like a second, third gear thing. And then eventually you learn what's soft and what's hard in sand because you can see it. It has to do with the wind, which way the wind is blowing it. Right? It blows the light particles. So on the face of a dune, it's usually kind of firm, and on the the lee of it, it gets a bit soft. Right, so you learn to read where your hard pack and where your soft pack is, and uh, and essentially you kind of surf on these waves by finding by planing on the hard pack. Weight 
has to be over the rear axle and the front end's got a plane. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one nice thing about driving on sand, and I guess learning to drive on sand, is it's kind of a forgiving surface. That's true, yeah. And you don't need to go a million miles an hour uh, to make it happen. Um, there's tricks that you have to know, like always plan to stop with your front end facing downhill. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, there's more to it than um, just riding. It's like a actively participating in it requires a bunch of different thought processes. Yeah, because you're not going to come uh, a complete stop trying to go uphill. Uh, you're All you're going to do is dig a hole with your rear wheel, right. I would imagine. Right. And don't use the clutch because you'll just burn it out. Yeah. So, it's all about, um, right. So there's these little doohickeys, little things to learn, but it can be quite fun. Like once I figured it out, uh, and also you have to surf the, on top of the bike, like your balance needs to move. You need to move yourself forward, back, left, right. All while maintaining a appropriate throttle. Um, it's a lot of fun. And I, Especially the Dunes and Sonora Rally, I really, really like. <laughs> yeah, I bet. All right, so let's move along the, uh, the sort of rally racing timeline. So the next thing here on my notes is I have 2012 Australian uh, Safari yeah. on the Rooney Racing Team. So, the, yeah. the, A, this sounds uh, another over, an, an overseas adventure here. And then anybody who knows about uh bmw rally the rooney name is uh one you're familiar with really uh is that so is that true like if you know bmw and rally rooney is the name that comes up i mean i, I think to a certain paul rooney right yeah. yeah yeah so i had raced a bunch like i had done a bunch of excuse me i had done a, done a bunch of these um nasa it's national auto sports association car racing organization we race under their auspices okay uh i had done that for now what's it 2012 from 07 for five years and they they'd done it now there's a new york rally south carolina i raced in michigan um there's even one or two in canada at that time so i'd done about 12 or 15 and i'm like okay maybe ready to step up my game and I mentioned something on ABD Rider, and I got a message out of the blue from Paul Rooney. And he said, hey, I heard you were wanting to race a BMW. If you uh, pay your way here and enter, like your own flight and pay your entry, uh, I'll be the mechanic and I'll let you ride my bike for the Safari Rally in 2012. Good grief. Like, I'm not getting these messages. <laughs> i'm just kidding like, no of course because well it makes a lot of sense i mean did you let me just jump in here i mean was he sort of scouting uh for a rider and he was on adv seeing who was up to that kind of stuff or what basically yes yeah uh, i guess he had i mean he was you know you know he's getting a bit old to ride himself yeah and uh and for whatever reason his rider the guys in Australia that he would normally go with that year couldn't do it. So he was open to, you know, exploring new things. And I guess he just happened to accidentally cruise across the coast of my, and yeah, I'd be interested in, uh, you know, upping 
doing something overseas. So he's like, hey, he's for real? I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> so I did it and finished, but had an epic journey the whole entire time. Like every day was a new a new experience where I learned something new and crashed and ended up like fixing the bike every day. And then one day pushed it across the finish in my underpants. And, uh, <laughs> it was a wonderful experience. Um, well, tell me about the bike. What, uh, what, what was it? Uh, it was, it was a Rooney. Uh, it was one of his earlier versions of the, of the bike I'm riding now. Okay. Uh, it, yeah, one of the early race uh, versions. Uh, it was still a loop for I think it was still... Huh. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was still a loop frame, uh, meaning, like, it was a, basically a, uh, a BMW stock frame with, with modifications. Sure. Yeah, all gusseted up and strengthened and whatnot. Yep, yep. Yeah, it was and, a... And a rear and what was the motor size? It was an 860. It was the 860 motor. Okay. So you take the eight, uh, the 650s, and you put the 1,000 cc kit on it, and it makes the 860. Oh. And oh okay. You, you do you do this because the 650 is, of course, one inch narrower overall, right? And it has the short connecting rod. Versus all of the other BMW um, uh, engines, right? From 500 up to 1,000, all have the exact same connecting rod. They just change the piston size. The 650 is the oddball out, and it has a short connecting rod. And to, let's be clear, it's not a 247 type engine. I can't remember which one it is. is, it, is it no, a, I think it's a, a 248 or a 246 or whatever. I can't remember which way, but I should being uh, on the 247 podcast but yeah it, it it lost that delineation i recall and so yeah so the and then the uh with the sh uh, smaller displacement uh and then you were saying also uh the conrods were a little bit shorter does that allow you to get your rpms up a little bit quicker as well but, rev the motor better but in, normally the 650 uh piston is like a Nine, um, 85 or 89 or something like that, and an mm -hmm. R100 piston is a 94. So you put an R100 piston on the short connecting rod, and you end up with like an 860. And so you have what's called you have an oversquare motor, right? So it's actually the piston is wider than the than the connecting rod is long, um, and it allows it to take advantage of both the fast revving capabilities. Uh, so you get up into the horsepower range very quickly, more quickly than a normal uh, BMW motor. And you take advantage of the high torque. Oh, oh it's, it's high torque because of the valves and the exhaust. Yeah. High revving, and it's fast revving because of the short uh, uh, conrod. So hopefully takes advantage Oh, hopefully gives it both advantages and <laughs> doesn't like, you know, just give you the worst, at least the best of both worlds and not the worst of both worlds. And it sounds like, so it was a pretty stable format for racing. Uh, I'm liking it so far. 
and that's uh, what you have. So you mentioned that was what's on what was on the Rooney bike you uh, rode yeah. uh, in 2012, and that's the setup you currently have on on your bike these days. That's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Right. All right. You know, I never thought about you. Uh, the motor's actually a little bit smaller. Uh, narrower, for yeah. sure, yeah. Narrow, yeah. yes. Yeah, I love that part. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Like, right, because it's 25 millimeters overall. Because of the, just because of the connecting rod, right. Yeah, and, and let's just, you know, say this, that might not seem like a lot, but when you're racing, every sort of inch, uh, millimeter... Second, whatever, all that adds up uh, when you start taking in the small incremental changes. Uh, that's that's right. you build up on those to, to gain an advantage. That's right, and I can't notice like uh, uh, an R100 maybe might make a little more horsepower depending on the R100 motor, um, but. I don't. I can't use it. Like I need my power to happen between thirty miles an hour and sixty miles an hour. Mm-hmm. I get it. I, uh, like we even changed because I didn't put. I needed the, the gear ratio of an R eight fifty with a disc brake, but I couldn't find one. But the K seventy five has the same gear ratio, right? Uh, the GS, the standard GS final drive gear ratio is too tall, so we wanted a lower one but it doesn't come lower in a GS format. The K75, however, has the lowered gear set. So we swapped out the K75 into a standard Airhead GS final drive container to run a lowered final drive gear set, and that's to provide acceleration to go along with the high revving engine to get up into the horsepower range quite quickly because I want to get from 30 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour. But I like it, the whole bike itself probably won't do over 80 or 90. Sure, <laughs> sure. I'll never go that fast. So now the bike you currently have, uh, and yeah. which again we can just say if folks want to look, you're under stagehand on ADV. Um, right. That's where most of those photos are going to be. Um, is does it has the K seventy five rear end on it? The K seventy five gear set inside of a um, Airhead GS um, the uh, final drive housing. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Rooney, and then on the Rooney, that then goes to a standard R eleven hundred swing arm and carbon shaft. Yes, that's when I look at those photos. It just looks like R eleven hundred rear end was grafted on, but there obviously a lot more going on inside there. But the the final drive is a drum, right? That's a standard GS drum, but it's got the K seventy five guts in it to to change the gear ratio because standard GS gearing is a, a what three point three six. And I needed a lower gear ratio for the rear end for the acceleration. So the only way to do that was to go with R850, which would have given me a disc brake, which would have been cool, but at the time, just didn't happen. (laughs) So I had to go drum brake. uh, And then that meant fine. And Anton Larjadere, who is another mentor and guy who is... I can't speak highly enough about 
uh, helped me rebuild the PD when that broke on the second year of um, the uh, Sandblast Rally. He rebuilt the whole bike with me. That's an amazing story, too, because through ADV Rider, uh, <laughs> like <laughs> that PD I got at 30,000 miles, uh, at 80,000, I'd sent the heads to be redone because 80,000 miles, you have to get the heads redone. But that was two days before the Sandblast Rally, and I finally <laughs> got them back. I put it back together, which was the first time I'd ever done that, and I felt I was, like, so proud of myself. It turns out I missed, forgot to put on one of the circlips on one of the piston rings. Oh, no. Piston. Uh, wrist pins. Open wrist pin clips, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I melted the engine. And so I, I, through ADV Rider, learned how to disassemble the entire engine. And then once I got it down to the crank, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and so Anton wrote me a message out of the blue and said, put everything you have in, in a box and bring it to my shop. And I did. And within 48 hours, I had a working motorcycle again. <laughs> that Wow. That quickly. Yeah, because once some, um, yeah, because he had a lot of parts there, and once we'd like, done some measuring, <clears throat> and I brought new pistons and cylinders with me, he just like, he was like, you sit there and clean things, and I sat for the first twelve hours. I just sat with my head over a parts washer and cleaned things, and as as soon as they were clean enough for him, I just handed to him. Yeah, and he taught me how to rebuild the engine after ADV Rider taught me how to take it apart. Uh, and since then, Anton has been, like, an, an amazing resource, like, such a big help to me. He's rebuilt a bunch of stuff with me. We've ended up building a bunch of other engines. He rebuilt the Rooney, actually. He base-built the Rooney with me as well. So, like, the crank was set by him on this bike. Uh and I learned an amazing amount from him, and he remains an incredible friend and resource to this day. Yeah, and it's a good time to remind folks uh, he's got his uh, mentioning resources, uh, L-A-G-I-A-D-E-R.com. Uh, he's got he's, he's done a lot of research uh, about you know anything from final drives, oil, dipstick length, uh, cam throttle cam gears. Uh, lots of especially important, uh, especially important the depth of the um, air, uh, the canister, the canister depth. Yeah. yeah, super, super interesting. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he really got really got into it. So, uh, folks out there listening, if you've not used his page uh, as a resource, it's great. Another one, uh, you know, it's worth mentioning. Uh, Robert Fleischer, Snowbum references uh, Anton a lot on his on his page as well. So, wow, uh, what an amazing Jason! You're it sounds to me you're living a bit of the charmed life uh, with this. I, I'm I'm a bit jealous. I mean, you go down, you spend a weekend with Anton. Max hooks you up. You've uh, you're riding the GS Trophy. You're riding the Paul Rooney bike. Now you're in uh, Switzerland riding European rallies. I mean. Jesus, Christos, what's going on here? Well, I feel extremely fortunate, and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, I don't know why it's happening, but um, yeah, I'm just trying to help other people as much as I've been helped. And now, and now, um, of course, a couple of years ago, you can't help but be on ADV Rider and be involved in this world and not see 
SPT, SWT. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's, I want to talk about that because uh, I've done an uh, interview with Manuel or Manu, uh, however he goes by. But I want, to wrap, I want to go back and just wrap up real quickly uh, your initial meeting uh, riding that Paul Rooney uh, bike in 2012. So that, yeah. th that's, I, I would say that's really where, from my calculations here anyway, that's really where you, so I don't want to say you became professional but i mean that sort of that that got you some resume experience kind of legitimized what you're doing you like started to learn a lot more you know you're really becoming involved in the in the rally and race community uh i what was that and tell me just about that rally what happened with the bike uh how how did you finish just what was the sort of su summary of that experience well, uh, that was a very special rally for me. Uh, I did learn a lot, and I was, like, wildly grateful and couldn't believe I was allowed to be there and, you know, just overwhelmed mostly the whole time. My first international rally, and, uh, you know, I was doing it on this unique bike. It wasn't like, I mean, everyone goes and does these rallies on KTMs, brand new ones, and I know they all look kind of identical, but this was kind of a unique experience, and, and it attracts a lot of attention just because it's so different looking. Uh, and, uh, man, I was just trying to be cool about it, and I, I tried to be upfront with Paul, like, man, I have never done this before, and I don't know how this is going to go. And he said, don't worry. We're going to have fun, and just don't worry about it. Have a good time, you know? Have a good, you know. Okay. Don't overthink it. I'm like, all right, good, done. Uh, all right, so we try to do that. <laughs> wow. But every time I think I get a little bit cool, I get over my head, and, um, you know, I fall, and something breaks, and I have to think of something to fix it. It's um, a little part of my, like, a, my little romantic version of myself where I want to be able to fix these things out in the wild. You know, if it breaks a... Uh, <sighs> And I ended up, that was, that was the year that every day something happened. And I had to, like, basically the first day, 30 miles into it, I duck underneath a branch. And for some reason, a branch caught some wires on the handlebars. And the next thing I know, it's literally yanked the throttle cables out of the throttle. And I'm staring at, like, I tip over, uh, blah, blah. Okay, turn the stand the bike back up, hit the throttle, and basically nothing, nothing happens, right? I mean, it starts, but then the throttle doesn't do anything. It's just totally loose. Uh, it just sits at idle. <laughs> I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, and then my eyes focus on the two like bare wires sticking up in my face. You know, like coming out of the throttle. Okay, what, is, what the hell do we do now? And and then this, like two or three people have passed me while I'm dealing with this. One guy stops. It's an Italian guy. He looks me up and down, and he like reaches into his pocket and hands me the smallest little uh, clamp, like a, um, a hose clamp, you know, but only like a, a one inch or it's the tiniest little thing. Sure. He's like, what I have? I'm, and I'm like, thanks. <laughs> and he drives off. <laughs> But I somehow managed to zip tie a pair of pliers that I had to the handlebars, 
and like use that one piece he had to like just cramp the wires together. And I'm like, this fucking fix isn't going to make it 20 Ks. Like I'm not, this is my first day and I'm going to call or like, I'm pulling a parachute. Like, yeah, yeah. But it made it the whole day. And when I pulled into camp, he was like, what the, f- what the hell is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I got here. I got home. Yeah, yeah, right. You made it. I made it. And the next day was the same thing. I accidentally hit a fence, just glanced on it and like tipped over. And I pushed the bike back up and I realized it's leaking gas everywhere. And I poked a hole in the tank. Oh, good grief. I got to fucking fix that. Um, And I found some fence wire and I fixed the throttle cable. Like every day it was like a new adventure. Um, How'd you, how'd you plug up? What'd you plug up the hole with? uh, Basically I, um, the the joke is like, I didn't, I, I wouldn't dare put any gasoline into that pristine environment. So I drank it down to the level of the, uh, hole and then just got to the first service. And then we were able to, like, fill it with some silicone crap, basically, and hope that it held until the next day, basically. And it was just kind of like it didn't, didn't think it was going to work, but it ended up working. Wow. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> we're just going to drive. Yeah. Uh, and then the whole thing was like that. And th- here's the crazy thing. I came in last place. Uh, of, of the whole entire valley, but I won the the um, Andy Caldecott Spirit Award for the rest. <laughs> like basically, I, I won the like, yeah, I lost the whole thing, but I won the Spirit Award. It's sort of, you got the Attaboy Award. Yeah, <clears throat> right. Like this guy pressed on <laughs> despite <laughs> all, <laughs> all like. He exemplifies the true spirit of the rally, like you know, yeah, yeah. On despite all the uh, no, that's not that, that's totally legit because, like you said, a lot of those uh, I don't want to say a lot of them, but I mean whatever. So there's a lot of you know KTM's rally specific bikes. You know they're burning up the times and all that kind of stuff. Whereas yeah. <clears throat> you're on a you're on an older, heavier you know big bike uh, and sort of the yeah yeah yeah. Um, we're, we're out here. We're out here, homemade, trying to do this like uh, from a grassroots perspective and having problems, but getting through it all the time. Like, <laughs> that's w- is that what's sort of known uh, in in those circles as a, a you're a privateer, meaning you're not necessarily sponsored by a company or a group. Yeah, yeah, it's just amateur. Yeah. Got it. Got it. I, would, I guess pri- privateer is probably a more if you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I would classify as an amateur because I don't do this professionally. I'm not paid for it. Uh, I, su- I support myself. I sponsor myself. Yeah, privateer. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Wow. Well, I'm glad we went back and touched on that uh, rally. That this. <laughs> I mean, you really did have to MacGyver your way through that, uh, as they say. Right. All right. So let's fast um, forward. So uh, the Rooney bike obviously made a... Uh, had a big influence on you. You essentially have one now. You built one very similar uh, that you're... So in, in between the Rooney and, uh, like, 
um, the PD yeah. of this other bike that I that I built with Tony, um, and that was the halfway bike. So this is the progression. Like I started off with the PD, which was purely a if we're for being real about it, it's really just a street bike. Yeah, right? totally. In, in clothes. Uh, and so, and the Rooney is more of a custom bike, but in the middle, there was this middle version that underwent a bunch of changes. Uh, it started off, I wanted to build an enduro dirt bike for the Northeast Woods. It was going to be a BMW, but I built it with Tony. After the, doing this rally in Australia, it kind of shifted gears, and I got... And the Baja rally was like inaugural too. Here I am with all these like first time events. I think that's important, like uh, to make sure you do all these events that are happening for the first time. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no one can tell you if you're doing it wrong if it's the first time. Right, doing. right. Anyway, the Baja rally, I built this. It was an R. It was a slash five frame, slightly reinforced, uh, with an R60 slash five engine. Right, and it had XR250 forks. Um, and I got it in like, it was just the engine was built and the, flame, the frame slightly reinforced. And almost nothing else was done to it. Uh, and I was trying to build an enduro bike out of it. Like, it was going to be completely stripped, no starter, no nothing, four speed kickstart. After Australia, it shifted gears and Baja Rally became a thing. And I'm like, well, now it's going to become a rally bike. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically finished it as a rally bike, got rear suspension for it, put a big tank on it, and tried to race it in the Baja Rally. And I finished, except that the R60 slash 5 engine with a four-speed transmission is a complete dog. It's a 35-horsepower thing that goes, wow. Yeah, totally, yeah. It's unbelievably reliable, but has got no balls whatsoever. And so I found... A R100RS 1978 with a that had been in a front end accident, so its forks were tweaked, but the engine was sound. So I literally just swapped that shit out, and I added, I doubled the horsepower instantly with like two bolts. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. went to 70, it went to a 70 horsepower RS engine with the five speed transmission that came with it. Um, and it was like, oh, no, holy fuck, now we have a bike. <laughs> now this thing is like, oh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's fire breathing with a huge valves and a 40 millimeter carburetor. It was like, oh, that was awesome. But it was still basically just street bike parts repurposed. Yeah, it was. You basically had a street bike uh, disguised as a rally bike. I would say, yeah, it sounds like awesome, what, and it works really good. Like it works great. But okay, now we go for the Rooney, which is a totally like custom one-off prototype thing. Mm. And the prototype now has gone. I fucked up, and the first time I painted the frame, it got sandblasted, and some of the sand got left in the frame, and I sanded the engine so I replaced the pistons and cylinders and then I ended up with a pair of pistons and cylinders where the rings were the wrong they were for cast iron not nicosil and they destroyed themselves and like, oh yeah yeah and I ended up then again now I have a another Steven Rock set which the engine is now tight and then <clears throat> two years ago 
the day before the Hellas rally, I discovered these big cracks in the frame. Uh, so I ended up fixing them on site. It was like a total, oh my God. The stress of like, I'm, I'm com- fully committed to this rally and now I've discovered enormous cracks in my frame the day before we start. I'm like, okay, 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 we're going to fix this. Now, is this where you ended up uh, meeting Manu at uh, SWT? Oh, no. Uh, I'd been involved with him before because, um, just because he loved BMWs and, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd gone and done a bunch of stuff. I'd buy parts from him. I'd actually gone up, uh, and he races these hair scramble things um, on his BMW. So I'd gone up for a weekend and did one of the hair scrambles with him. And, and he does the... Uh, uh, Boxer Enduro Treffen every year, where all of the custom BMWs and whatnot, he has access to a uh, motocross track. Yeah, I've seen some of those photos and, and videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got Timo Kersey uh, and a bunch of other, and, and uh, some other guys to do some training. And it's a really fun weekend. It's like, it's like a basic BMW rally weekend, but total spot, like very fun, total spots. Good times. Yeah, so... <laughs> I so t- just like hanging out with him because he's such a nice guy. Yeah, t- so tell me about meeting him. I mean, obviously, we know his credentials as a, as a bike builder, as the aficionado yeah. of uh, uh, the Airhead sort of rally bikes. I mean, he's he's really elevated he's himself. Like a, he's the modern HPN guy. That's what I was going to say, yes. Yeah, um, with he, his own ideas, and I think that's brilliant. Like, I love that... He's got his own TUV, meaning German. He he designed a modification for the BMW frame and uh, built three of them to be destroyed by Germany. And they like checked it out, and they were like, "Yep, that works." And so it's street legal. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, he's uh, essentially uh, a licensed motorcycle builder in Germany. Right, and that's amazing. So. Um, I have a lot of faith in him. <laughs> he is totally like an affable. He is very, he's got the biggest heart. Like he is such an, I guess, open, honest guy, willing to help. Like I can only say this because I know what he does in his, um, uh, when he's not motorcycle building. Like I know he's a, um, he works overnight at the local hospital and uh, he spends a lot of time there. So like, I know that's, a whole part of his deal, like volunteering and being community-minded. We were at the shop, and I heard the siren go off, and he just sprinted out of the room, and he, like, ran down to the these volunteer um, first responder as well, right? Like, so he's got this sense of community that is extends not only to his own community and how and where he grew up in the small town but to the motorcycle community too like he helps people to a fault and it's really to a fault because I, I i have a feeling people tend to take advantage of that and i'm really trying not to like i just want to be on his side not taking anything from him personally that's my approach on the other hand he is also very direct in a german way like one of my goals of learning german uh, it, I tried for, I have for two years in school, German, uh, to learn. 
Ich, ich habe vor zwei Jahren Deutsch gelernt. Ich versuche Deutsch zu lernen. Especially so I can talk to Manuel. Um, primarily so like I can converse with him in his own language. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. Since I have that opportunity. Um, his German is difficult. It's like dialect. It's a Frankish dialect that I find difficult. Especially because the Zurich German is very different sounding. Hmm. Uh, but, he, but he makes fun of me. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm learning German now. Um, <laughs> and he said something to me. I'm like, what? He's like, I guess you need to go to school more. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, you're right. He's very direct. <laughs> well, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that makes communication easy. You know, you know where you are. There's a video, I think, uh, of you two uh, in his shop. It's on YouTube. I guess it's on the SWT page. And I've seen a little bit of it. Uh, you're out riding in the woods. You're in the shop. Uh, and I think there he might even be uh, railing a little bit about uh, your German on there. I can't recall. but Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, um, yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed about that video because I said, uh, what I said was, He's like, how are you able to do all this stuff? I'm like, uh, I'm like, I got a rich wife. And I meant, what I, what I said was I have a rich wife. What I should have said is I have an understanding wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's more accurate. But I'm, my German is always good, and I was under pressure. <laughs> so, Ooh, that's funny. I, I like him a lot. He's really great. Um, and I am finally fortunate enough to have hopefully committed to uh, building an SVT motorbike with him. Finally. I know he's like, you know, I had, I had kind of wanted to be like, oh, well, I have a Rooney in the garage. I should add an SVT to the collection. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so I've been kind of trying to get there for a number of years. Uh, so, yeah, so you're going to get like a frame, you're working possibly towards a frame numbered bike from him and all that. Correct. Apparently, I have number two hundred, um, but he's yeah. And so I'm going to go for the full Monty. So we're going for the the uh, uh, the swing arm frame triple um, fork fork brace fork triple um, and whatever else he's got going on. What are those bikes like? Full- you know, I want to ask you, Jason. I've never really ridden a tricked out uh, sort of in you know, built enduro bike with, you know, upside down forks and, uh, you know, great suspension, rear, front and rear. I mean, what I have, you know, I still have sort of a street version of all that. I have a GS, a, a 81 GS, where I uh, put some later model forks on there uh, from the 88 bike. But anyway, uh, how what are those bikes like when you get them? I know how, I have a feeling how they handle off-road. What are they like if you're riding them on the street? Is it just like a regular bike, uh, it, it, it gives it a very modern feel. Okay. Right? Stiff. Um, it's, it basically, tra- it, I, I want to say like the, the Rooney is a little bit strange on road. It's not bad. It's great. It's lovely. Um, you, you just have to be a little, because it's usually with mooses in it and you know, you just got to be careful whacking it in the corners. It's not a street racer, knee dragger or anything. So, ride appropriately uh like how, <laughs> how are you gonna ride a bike with that's got a, a 
10 PSI equivalent air pressures in it, right? Yeah, yeah uh, right, right, right. Just, just be careful on it. But um, typically the frame is stiffer and the suspension is far, far better. So it's going to be better than any airhead you've ridden generally. But it's going to have all the things you like about the airhead engine, you know, that like quirky business that comes out of the corners, right? That's the fun part. And um, I imagine it would be hard for you then, I don't want to say difficult, but uh, it, it, it'd be, you probably wouldn't be buying a, a stock, buying and riding maybe then a stock airhead. It sounds like you've, I don't want to say been spoiled necessarily, but you've seen the, the light on the other side. I mean, have you gotten back on just a standard issue yeah. airhead and, uh, yeah, I I found a really beautiful uh, Swiss R80 GS, uh, a 1990, whose part numbers are basically identical with all the other R100. Um, it, it's an R80 because in Swiss they are typically limited to 800. Okay. Um, the 800 version, but that's that's a very simple piston cylinder swap. That's it. On yeah. Modification. Uh, and all the other part numbers are the same. It's a GS. It's the same GS fork, yeah. GS rear end. The whole thing is exactly the same. Uh, so I have one. <laughs> uh, and I've just been making, like, the the, the nice upgrades that I like uh, that, are, that are legal. <laughs> I did some inserts and the uh, alternator, and um, I got one of those cool Australian timing timing cans. Electronic digital. Timer. Oh yeah, uh, wedge tail. Yep. Because um, I actually met him through Paul <laughs> uh, briefly, so I got to know him through that. Yeah, Mark um, Mark Morrissey. Okay, um, so you're not uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater on on a stock no, airhead then? And no, and this, this airhead is awesome. Uh, I'm still working on the ergonomics of it. Like I'm not 100% pleased with the seat height peg height handlebar thing, but we're getting there. Um, it's fun to play with, and it's nice. Uh, the passes, you know, it, I'm in Switzerland, so uh, full, to, I'm sorry, Furka Pass and Andermatt and that whole, that whole thing, Susten Pass, that's all within an hour and a half. Stelvio is about four hours from here, so that's a long day, but totally, I don't mind doing eight, ten hours. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So sort of pivot here to talk about a little bit about what what's sort of on the horizon for you, what you're sort of working and, and planning on. We're having this discussion here in uh, uh, late March of 2023. So what's the, the spring and summer look like uh, for you ahead with uh, any uh, rally events, uh, that kind of stuff? Yeah. The, the really, uh, I'm planning on doing Hellas Rally for the fourth time or fifth time in May. Uh, and I just discovered, I, I decided it would probably be a good idea to take, take a look at the bike before you get there, as opposed to the day of, like I did last time. <laughs> yeah, that sounds um, smart, yeah. And I discovered another small crack in the frame, uh, in the Rooney frame. This one looks more like a stress riser from welding rather than vibration crack. Anyway, took it up to SAT again, SWT, and 
did some major uh, reinforcement to the frame. And I just brought the frame back to my house, and now I refit it to the engine to make sure all of the extra metal we added doesn't interfere with, like, the existing parts of the engine <laughs> and grind down what does not fit. Uh, and then I'll have to give it another quick coat of paint and then reassemble before we go race in May uh, and give it hopefully another couple of two, three hours of cleaning out the frame because it's an air in frame uh, thing. Yeah, I, I saw some of those pictures on ADV. I was, I, that's, that was new to me. I'm used to oil and frame. Okay. I had a six right. Honda 650 XR, you know, that was an oil and frame bike, but this is an air and frame. And then apparently you had some, uh, loose, uh, particles get down there and, uh, do a little dance on your piston head. Yeah. That's going to be always a danger. That's mm. always a risk. Um, especially because, I mean, it's a cool idea and I love the uniqueness and the, um, I love the thought process about it. It's not a totally unique idea. There's one or two other bikes out there that do air in frame, but while I love the like artistic part of it, um, it's a pain in the ass because you just can't clean it out. You can't be, you can't you just can never confirm that it's fully cleaned out. Even sure. if you wash, blow dry, endos and endoscopy, uh, do a colonoscopy on it. <laughs> right. Like, with vacuum cleaners and magnets and like you can just never be sure uh that's funny so we do the best we can and it works it works it yeah it works most of the time <laughs> uh i'm also open to the idea of some kind of like screen catch on the intake that's what i was gonna ask i mean that's, that's to me that seemed like too obvious of a question but uh yeah a, a fine mesh uh screen somewhere isn't that gonna do the job Secondary, it's like a secondary filter. Yeah. After the main filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the process. But the whole bike is a prototype, and that's the fun part of it. Because, sure. I mean, the rear brake underwent 12 iterations, and uh, even the electrics are, are continually undergoing. Even the frame is in its, after five years, it's got, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a prototype, and that's part of the fun. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A living, working uh, prototype. Yeah, and it, and it increases my education this whole time, from the PD, uh, you know, up through the, like, up upgrading stock uh, equipment to, you know, what's the next thing up from stock, what's the next aftermarket, to then building this, like, bike that's part street bike but has different a different front end from a Honda, or, you know, that's, that's unusual to having a completely custom frame. Now my goal is an SVT, right? Because that'll be far more factory parts altogether. Right. And a more, um, and a more, um, a frame that won't crack presumably because it's been proved. Uh, and I can do these more races. I'm hoping to do bigger and better races than the European ones, like in Africa, specifically Morocco, uh, with a big tank, um, and do the old, you know, Dakar thing. Wow. Uh, and then after, after that, and so basically I'll have a Rooney and an SWT in the collection. And after that, my goal, like my ultimate goal, I'm learning how to, teaching myself how to weld, uh, 
when I first got the Rooney frame, I couldn't weld as that well, but now my skills have improved that I think I can weld better than the welds that are on the Rooney. So that means I should be able to build a frame myself that won't crack for at least 100 hours. <laughs> this, this frame, 100 hours to crack, right? So <laughs> I can weld better than that right now. So I think maybe a new... Because here's the deal. I've watched Manuel race. He like he's a huge guy. He know? is big, isn't he? He's like over two. He's like over. He's like six, four or five something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two two forty, and he can just manhandle a BMW around like it's a two fifty or one twenty five. He like dog paddles it up these hills, and I am Gaston Raye. I'm like hiding <laughs> behind the feet. Um, and it's totally unfair. It's like a completely different experience well there's there's pros and pros and cons to you know both your builds i think right that's true so if i could make a frame that fits me around this engine the same way it kind of fits him i see like like even if i dealt with a few inches less of suspension probably wouldn't matter right i wouldn't need i don't need to move around quite so much weight as he does i don't need the extra Maybe I can get by with like a few inches less if I can shrink the motor down somehow and shrink the frame down. My friend um, uh, David from the Netherlands, he made his own frame and managed to shrink the wheelbase by several centimeters by making the timing gear from a Ducati so he could reduce, he could pull the front wheel two inches towards the engine. Whereas with our BMWs now, all the timing gear gets in the way. But he could reduce that by like 50 millimeters or something. So he could reduce the whole frame. And if I could somehow get the sump a little smaller, (laughs) that would also be good. Basically, uh, reducing the engine mass somehow and fitting it to a frame that fits me as a five foot nine guy, hundred and what do I weigh? 160, 70 pounds. What you're trying to do is create a, a, a modern enduro style bike. It sounds like. Yeah. 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 Right. But with this BMW engine, because yeah, yeah. Disease, right. Um, and yeah. And the 860 is perfect because it's as narrow. Even if I could shrink the Conrad's more, I, why not? It would go, I guess the angle gets too weird, but whatever. It might as well use this engine. It's perfect. It's fine once it's. I think this engine is great because once it's set, it's fine. Well, you you brought up something there. Uh, I think's relevant is okay. So you mentioned sort of your height and weight there. Uh, the also, Jason. You know, you and I are about the same age, so you are post fifty. <laughs> uh, what? Do you have what do you do to keep, if anything, uh, to keep in riding shape? It seems like I've seen some of uh, uh, Manu's videos where he's stretching and exercising and doing some you know sorts of things. He looks a little bit younger uh, than you were you or I. I don't know, but um, you yeah, you have yeah. to be you have to be thinking about that as you get a little bit more advanced in age. Uh, you're you know if you fall over and tweak a knee, it doesn't heal in two weeks like it used to. So 
talk to talk to me a little bit about just how you're approaching that health and and training wise. So, I hate running and working out, but when I get to, but when it gets to be about two months before a rally, I do these uh, Spartacus workouts, which are basically body weight workouts. Uh, and I have a problem with my right knee. I have this like a um, massage uh, device that can work on the tight muscles in my calves. It helps a lot. So I try to do that. I hate actually working out, but get, as we get closer to the rally, I'm going to have to start doing an actual program versus my regular just sporty, sporty action. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, I I had uh, here in Arkansas. Um, I turned I turned fifty a couple of years ago, and this is I'm just realizing this. I'm starting. I'm am sounding like an older man now talking. Uh, but anyway. Uh, I had built a little motocross track on my property, it was just little dirt jumps. You know, I have a tractor, so I'd made like little six-foot dirt jumps, and I used the contour contour of the land. I'm sorry. Do you teach me how to jump? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's there isn't a whole lot to it. Uh, hit the throttle and hope for the best. That's how I've learned. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, so uh, what I'm getting at is I had this motocross. And I'm using that term loosely. I mean, it wasn't a motocross track, but I'd made it. Yeah, I know. And I had a 650R. I used to ride around and do the jumps and all that kind of stuff. I bought a KTM uh, two-stroke a couple years ago. And I told myself when I bought that bike, I said, look, the next time, and I'm not prone to crashing. I said, you know, if I ever fall off on this and, you know, tweak a knee or a shoulder or something, that's going to be it. Because, you know, I'm getting up there and, you know. Things don't heal like they used to. And sure enough, I was on this K- on the KTM. It was the 300 uh, EXC. And I'd been riding for about 45 minutes doing the jumps. I got all the gear on and stuff like that. And I thought, man, before I go in the house, I'm, and like you, I'm not a really good at wheelies, but I was slowly learning. And I sort of forgot how a two-stroke works. And... I just got a hand full of throttle and just went straight vertical, 90 degrees. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, next thing you know, I'm looking at the handlebars uh, in my face. And of course, f- f- fell off the bike. And it just, that. yeah, tw- and I, you know, twisted my knee a little bit. But I said to myself, you know what? That's, that's it. Uh, I don't, I, I need to put it down. I Put the road, took the bike up to the house, washed it, cleaned it, made it look real nice, shined it up a little bit. I had it sold on ADV in like three days, and that was sort of it for me. So, the I, I, I'm saying all that to say I can appreciate what you're doing. Uh, the the sort of you're you're saying you already live an active lifestyle to a certain degree, but not everybody does. That's our age, but. Uh, I can appreciate what it takes to stay in physical shape well, and and what what you have to do to prepare to ride like that because it is uh, it, it's it takes a lot out of you. It's physically it's challenging. Well, yeah, I mean, but I don't ride like that. Like, like I I know I hear what you're saying, but like I got this. The it's like um I don't win um but I got a pace. Right, like I just have a a constant pace. That's the key, I think. It's not 
I don't know. I don't know how to win. Uh, I'm not one of those guys. But I know how to finish. And that's you're not a- you're not pushing the envelope. You're sealing it and making sure it gets to the mailbox. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of people that can't finish, and I'm not one of them. But I'm not one of the ones that like is going to be near the front either. Yeah, uh, that's a whole other thing. Um, but I'm doing something that's. I feel it's just what I like. I guess I'm not. It's what I like to do. It's like I'm. It's in the mid. Uh, it's funny. Uh, like I'm not chasing the winds. I, I get I it. Well, yeah. Like uh, it's just like what's challenging for me. Like I, I want to be my own mechanic. I, I'm not a very good one. Like, uh, but being my own mechanic and like handling my own and finishing is like that's a home built thing. That's the like challenge. Uh, I don't see anyone else doing it. I, I, I really admire and re- respect what you're doing. Uh, it, it's it's really it's really impressive. Uh, really impressive. All right. So I want to remind everybody uh, you're on ADV uh, as stagehand. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of other uh, poking around. I mean, is that the easiest way? Folks want to find out yeah. sort of what you're up to. I, I don't know that you've got uh, other social media pages, do you? The only thing I actually participate in is, uh, let me call it, um, Instagram at, at Airhead Rally Team. Okay. Rally rally with an E, because that's a race as opposed to a rally with no E, which is a camp out. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, okay. Yeah, that, fair enough. I'd always wondered about the spelling difference, and you're right. Those are two totally different things. Two totally different things. So Airhead Rally Team on Instagram stagehand uh on adv and the airhead forum so jason look uh it's been a real treat thank you very much yeah man it's been a lot of fun talking to you i have to say um just again i'm not trying to uh blow your skirt up here but i'm just you know really been impressed uh with what you've done and been able to accomplish uh your 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 attitude and uh, everything you've done has just been really fun to watch from afar. So continued success. Thank you very much. That's really nice of you to say. I very much appreciate it. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks to Jason for joining us. A lot of great stories, information, everything wrapped up in that interview today. As always, we look forward to visiting with you next time. Until then, so long, everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm-hmm.